This is Burn Built Made. I am Patrick Freeburn. For this episode, listener discretion is very much advised. Here's Casey Neistat. You're asleep in your bed, in your home, and it's after midnight, and all of a sudden, you're sleeping in that bed, your girlfriend's next to you, boom, door gets kicked in. Uh, three men smashing your door and they come running into your home and you you're worried about your girlfriend so you grab your gun which you're legally permitted to have and uh, you see these three dudes you shoot at one of them you hit him in the leg and the three guys that just broke into your house that just smashed down your door um, they respond by firing 20 shots eight of which uh, hit your girlfriend and she's dead and then you get taken away in handcuffs by the three men that just broke into your apartment and killed your girlfriend. Her name was Brianna Taylor. She was 26 years old. Uh, she worked as a technician in an emergency room, and she's dead. And the three men that shot her were cops. Uh, they were in plain clothes. They had something called a no-knock search warrant, which permitted them to bust in that door totally unannounced in the middle of the night. Um, and they did all this because they thought that she had drugs in her apartment. Uh, those cops, the police, they didn't find any drugs because uh, she, didn't, she didn't have any drugs in her apartment. That was March 13th. That was three months ago. And um, the three men who shot her eight times and killed her, uh, they've faced no punishment. Um, that's not just. That's not right. And if there are laws that say that that's okay, that are protecting these three men who killed her, then those laws are wrong. And whether it's a, a, a knee on your neck for nine minutes until you asphyxiate and die because you used a counterfeit $20 bill, um, or you're strangled to death in a chokehold uh, on a sidewalk because you were selling individual cigarettes, which you're not supposed to do, um, None of that's just. None of that is justice. None of that's okay. And it, it, if you've got a conscience, you, you want that to change. And change is really hard. Uh, you vote. Uh, you speak up. You promote politicians or, or, or people who can affect change who have the same values as you. Um, but sometimes you have to take to the streets. Sometimes you march. You, uh, you force your voice to be heard. Um, this right now, this is a moment. And this is a moment that will be discussed and talked about for the rest of our lives. Um, and right now, that discussion is uh, muddled. And it's muddled by the, the, the looters and criminals who are using uh, peaceful discourse, peaceful protesting as an excuse for criminality. It's muddled by police that are tear gassing um, demonstrators um, for a photo shoot in, in front of a boarded up church. And it, it's muddled by these sensational instances that make for, that make for compelling television. But if you look just beyond the shit you're seeing on the news every night, you look just beyond that sensationalism. If you don't let yourself be distracted, you can see what's actually taking place right now. And you see people all over this country, in all 50 states, 
all 50 states and all, all over the world standing up against injustice, standing up for racial equality, standing up for black people who have contributed to the growth and success of this country just as much as anyone else, but have never been able to enjoy the same freedoms as everyone else. Uh, racism in America is real. If you don't, if you don't believe me, scroll down. Look at the comments on this video. And when, when you don't think something is real, when you don't think something is a problem because that something doesn't affect you personally, that's called, that's, that's privilege. Now, I'm, I'm not scared of a cop, uh, not scared of police. I've never been scared when a police officer pulls me over in my car. I've never feared for my life. Um, I'm not concerned that I might not get a bank loan um, or at least in an apartment or get the full attention of a doctor in a hospital because of the color of my skin. These things just don't occur to me. And that, that is privilege. Um, that's, that's, that's privilege. Knowing, knowing what to do with that privilege is really hard. Um, but you can use that privilege to, to hold other people accountable when you see racism taking place. That's where it matters. Behind closed doors, when no one is looking, that's where progress can begin. And vote. Voting's not sexy. Voting's never, talking about voting's not sexy. Um, it takes time, slow, but voting works. Um, Ella Jones just became uh, the first black mayor, the first woman to be mayor of, uh, of Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and on that same day that she was elected mayor, uh, Representative Steve King from Iowa, vocal racist, was voted out of office after 17 years. That's progress. Vote. Because this this right now, this is our time. And I'll, I'll end this whole monologue by saying everyone loves to quote Dr. Martin Luther King. They love to put his face on Instagram, love to put his words on Twitter, but ask yourself this. When it was his time, would you have marched alongside him? Because he wasn't loved then. He wasn't celebrated. He was vilified. And the same kind of vitriol that's being used against the critics of this movement, that vitriol is used against him. He's dangerous. He's inciting violence. He's not protesting the right way. He's racist. When he and other nonviolent activists marched from Selma to Montgomery because, because they wanted the same voting rights as non-blacks, they were met with violence and hatred. Would you have shown up? So, so that was 50 years ago, um, and that was their moment, and this is ours. And you have to honestly look in the mirror, and knowing that this will be remembered, ask yourself, how do you want to remember your role in this? And with that, I say, let's go. Let's put on our fucking boots, because it's time to march. That was Casey Neistat.
He's a YouTuber, a vlogger, a filmmaker. He's white. I took the audio you just heard from a a post he put on Instagram because his message was compelling. He spoke in a way that I don't think I can replicate. I can write well, but I don't always speak in a manner that effectively gets a point across. It's now August 2020. George Floyd was murdered in late May. I've been pretty quiet on social media for the past few months because in this moment of history, I didn't feel as if my voice would have an impact in a productive way, in the way that I want it to, or in a way that I feel is valuable to the cause or that would further comprehension of the conversation. That's why it's taken me this long to say anything. And before I really dive in, I want to put a disclaimer on this episode that nothing will be consciously censored. I want to speak freely in my own words, and because of that, uh, my language and descriptions may be too graphic or may prompt traumatic emotions for some listeners. And with that in mind, listen at your own discretion, especially if your ancestors were enslaved. So, the fight for civil rights, as it should, has taken precedence over whatever I may be cutting up on a bandsaw or epoxying together. And at this point, there's a wealth, a wealth of information available about how to help and how to approach this in a beneficial way. This information is coming from much more respectable sources than this small town white guy who can count his black acquaintances on two hands and black friends on one hand. And that's not, that's not self-deprecation. That's a nod to the many organizations and leaders who dedicate their whole existence to the ongoing fight to achieve a balance of societal value among Americans of different colors and creeds. But today I'm focusing specifically on black people. Black people whose very recent ancestors were removed from their homes, chained in the bottom of ships, and sold like a product to white human traffickers who forced them to perform unpaid labor for their entire lives and for their children's entire lives. The white human traffickers performed unthinkable acts on these black people that they kept chained up and chained together. Black people, as they were literally building the America we now know, were flogged, raped, tortured, made to whip each other, thrown in hot punishment pits for days at a time, medically experimented on, made to fight each other to the death, impregnated, branded, mutilated, lynched, murdered. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves, and blood at the root, black bodies swinging. In the southern breeze 
I don't want to go on. You can research the details yourself. If you're too busy to put effort into this, now is a great time to reprioritize, to skip Netflix for a night. Go follow the handle History Cool Kids on Instagram and check out the recommendations toward the end of this episode. Educating ourselves is literally the least we can do in the midst of a historical civil rights movement. When the sun comes back, when the first quail calls, follow the dragon go. For the old man is waiting for, carry you to freedom, follow. On the 19th of June in 1865, the Union Army had won the Civil War against the Confederacy, and Texas was forcibly made to finally liberate their enslaved black population, even though Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had outlawed slavery two years prior. It took some extra time to wipe out the Confederacy, specifically in Texas, where the white population desperately clung to their desire to keep black people in chains doing unpaid labor. Slavers migrated to Texas because it was large and less monitored, and that's where the Confederacy dwindled on. The Confederacy with their beloved stars and bars flag that every other modern-day lifted truck owner smears across his back window like an ignorant fool, even up here in the Northeast where we were Union states. So that was 1865, Juneteenth, a century before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s march. What the hell was America doing for the next hundred years? In 1955, when my parents were little kids, Rosa Parks refused to give up her bus seat for a white man, 65 years ago. In 1963, Dr. King marched on Washington seeking equal civil and economic rights for black people, 1963, 57 years ago. In June 1964, black and white activists at the Monson Motor Lodge in St. Augustine, Florida, jumped into a pool together to protest segregation and had hydrochloric acid poured in on them by the lodge owner. What the hell has America and white America been doing for the last 50 some odd years that we can't seem to get our act together and finally simply show universal support to this group of people who we, white America, have treated as less than human throughout this country's existence. This group of people upon whose backs America was built. This group of people with a strong, multifaceted culture the rest of this country is all too eager to borrow when convenient. But no. We continue to allow our country's ugly, historically unequal treatment of the black population to trickle forward in time into housing, jobs, education, incarceration, law enforcement, poisoning 
modern day society. And that's racism. The fear that a black face gives them. A subconscious racist. Wait, why are there black neighborhoods? Cause America segregated us, designated us to an area, separated us, sectionated us when we tear it up. The only time attention's paid to us. Let's bring it back to Burn Built Made. To me, Patrick. I am a 29-year-old guy with a tool collection in very white upstate New York. Before transferring out to Oswego State College in middle New York, I went to Adirondack Community College, where I remember two black students who were regularly seen on campus, and there may have been more, but I remember regularly seeing two in an enrollment of 2,000. I did not grow up among a diverse population. My first conscious encounter with the concept of racism was when my father began reading Huckleberry Finn with me sometime in my childhood. We would trade off every paragraph or every chapter or something like that. Toward the end of the first chapter, the N-word is used, and my dad stopped reading and he said to me, Mark Twain uses a word in his writing that I can't say. I can't say it. It's a disgusting word to call someone. And he pointed it out to me. He told me, we're going to say Negro instead. My dad was a teenager in the 1960s. Dr. King and most people, I'm sure, used the word Negro then. It was before white America turned to African American, and then people of color, and now in a non-derogatory context, black. We read the rest of that book saying Negro Jim. Growing up, I was taught the golden rule. Treat others as you'd like to be treated. This practice and the awareness of it is empathy. If you can put yourself in another person's shoes, applying their situation of strife to yourself, perspective is brought to a very personal level very quickly. This is why last August 2019, Ohio's Congressman Mike Turner, a Republican with 93% favorable rating from the NRA, suddenly switched his position to support a ban on high-capacity military-style weapons only after his daughter, by happenstance, was at the scene of a mass shooting. When that mental default of it'll never happen to me happens to us, our worldview is shifted and empathy is gained. And the less empathy someone has, I dare say, the more privileged life they lead, as they may have never had to live through the various hardships that allow empathy and a broader sense of perspective to be built organically. Let me tell y'all what it's like being male, middle class, and white It's a bitch if you don't believe Listen up to my new CD, Shamon This is why I love listening to Risk Podcast uh, Risk's live, true stories only storytelling Allows listeners to hear first-hand experiences From people who lived through situations and events Helping listeners sympathize with what those people experienced and what they went through and what they survived sometimes 
the content and narratives presented on risk are very real, raw, and in your face. Um, let's hear from someone else in the maker community. Uh, this audio is ripped from an Instagram post by uh, Jason Hibbs, or as you may know him, at Bourbon Moth. The video is titled, To the White Community. It was posted on June 8th, and the caption reads, After taking a week off social media to leave room for more important voices, it didn't feel right to return to business as usual without sharing what's been on my heart. What a crazy week it has been. <laughs> Emotional roller coaster is an understatement. I'm sure you guys are all feeling the same way. I just wanted to hop on here before I just dive back into my regular routine of just posting pictures of me in the shop. I felt like I had a responsibility to just kind of let out what has been on my heart this past week as I have just been thinking about and praying about the situation in our country, talking to a lot of people in the black community, listening to a lot of different resources online from the black community. My head has just been spinning and I don't have answers. I just have my heart. And so I'm just going to tell you what I've been thinking. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not black. All right. I live in Oregon. We don't have a lot of sun up here. I'm literally as white as you could possibly get, translucent even. So I don't really feel like I could speak to anybody except the white community with any validity at all. So white people, this is pretty much just for you. Um, at least you're who I want to hear this. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I just wanna say that racism exists. Whether you want to believe it or not, racism exists. I know we like to pretend that it doesn't, or we like to pretend that it was this thing that happened in the past, but we, you know, overcame that, or that it was just something we read about in our history books, but racism still exists. It's still very, very much alive. And it's going to continue to be alive until the people responsible for it change. Who are the people responsible for it? Um, we are. We are the people responsible for it. Now, you might be thinking, hey, that's not fair. It's just a small percentage of white people that are racist. You might argue that, you know, I'm not racist, so I don't need to change. It's the racist white people that need to change. They're the ones. Yes. This is true, the racist white people do need to change. But to acknowledge a problem within your race, but then say, I don't need to change, it's just them, um, that's kind of dumb logic. Sorry, don't offend you, but that doesn't make any sense. That'd be like me watching my son bite somebody and then arguing that, well, I don't bite people, so it's not my problem. He's the one biting people, he needs to change. When people are doing something wrong, they're not going to just stop doing it just being left on their own. That's not how it works. They're only going to stop doing it when somebody who knows what is right stands up and says, hey, stop doing that. So it doesn't really matter what percentage of white people you may or may not think are racist. 
if you are white, then as a member of the white community, you have a responsibility to stand up to racism and say, stop, this is wrong. Don't do it. As we move forward from this week, we can't let this week just become a memory. We can't let this week just be this momentary spike in our history, you know, where everybody was bored from coronavirus and this thing happened and it was trendy and, you know, we felt good about it, so we did it for that week. This has to be the start. It can't be the end. We have to move forward with a constant vigilance, looking for any and all signs of racism in our own lives, in our families, in our communities, in our governments, in our places of work. And we need to stand up together as the white community and we need to say we're not going to tolerate this anymore. We're not going to accept this. It needs to stop. We need to affect that change. We need to be the champions for the black community for once instead of the race that has undeniably been pushing them down for most of our history. But we also need to listen. We need to listen, not only to our, our own point of views or our personal opinions, but we need to listen to their experiences and their expressions and their emotions and hurt and pain and we need to stop saying that we, we know how to treat people. We know how to be nice. We know how to be kind. And we need to start listening to how they want us to treat them. After this week, my page is just going to go back to the same old mediocre woodworking that you guys have come to know and love. But this burden of responsibility to call out racism and to affect change, it is going to continue to weigh on my heart. As a father to a young black boy, a father who is going to watch that young black boy grow from a child into a man, this burden of responsibility is going to be constantly on the front of my mind. And so the one thing that I would ask of you guys is that you would open up your hearts to accept that same burden of responsibility. Because until there is no more racism in the world, it is all our responsibility. It is all our burden to care. So I love you guys. Your support has been amazing to me and my family. And I appreciate you so much. So let's all frickin' create some change. Let's all gather together and move this thing forward and not leave it behind. We have to take this ball with us. So let's do it, all right? Okay, now I gotta go build some furniture. Seriously, guys, grace and peace. Again, that was Jason Hibbs at Bourbon Moth on Instagram. From a maker perspective, he did a great job summing up how I feel. There's only one thing he said that I want to revisit. He said white people should bear the burden of responsibility of stamping out racism everywhere we see it in our lives. Now, without digging into possible better terms to use, 
I know that standing up for those being oppressed should not be a radical idea. And doing so should not be a burden to me. While it is certainly a responsibility, it should also be a downright virtuous and fulfilling act to confront and stamp out racism as it happens. Putting a stop to the pain of another person is not just a responsibility, it can be a mission. It can be a natural reflex. It can be a joy to lend a hand. Even if it's a mission that gets you punched in the jaw, walking away from or or ignoring a situation that would otherwise result in the suffering of a person or of an entire minority group, knowing that you could have stopped that suffering will be a greater burden to bear than knowing in your heart that you did what you could to fight the good fight. You would do it for your buddies. Why not extend that care and concern to someone you don't know? So here I am. Here we are. People who make things. People who care about the way things work and the way things are designed and the way things are used. So how does this impact us? As a maker, my umbrella mission is to make things, make spaces or experiences that play toward a more enjoyable use, existence, or living experience for myself and for the people around me. And whether that is a side table with a hidden whiskey compartment just for fun, or a bunk bed for my niece and nephew that will provide them with privacy and utility as they move through their childhood, my goal as a maker is to blow past normal and augment people's experience in a positive manner. What better way is there to move through life than this? The satisfaction of a job well done, the betterment of the day-to-day living standard, and the community support that goes both ways, mind you, from project beginning to end, what could be more fulfilling? And when this perspective is applied to the lives of others, does that same goal, that same satisfaction, not still prevail? What is intervention in human suffering, if not the ultimate maker's effort in improving the experience of life, in this case for someone else? In the maker community, we lift each other up. We support one another. We aim to enrich each other's lives. To not also do that in society would be hypocrisy. A well-made society, a well-designed experience living in society would not include racism. It would not include discrimination or oppression of, or, or, or different treatment based on skin color. Um, there's an article that was written in 2017 by a distinguished ex-Google engineer who is now the chief of chief uh, chief ethics advisor at a tech company in California. His name is Yonatan Zunger. The article is titled, Tolerance is Not a Moral Precept. And this article made a huge impact on me for reasons that I'll explore in a future podcast episode. But I want to summarize it now so that we can all understand its purpose. Tolerance is not a moral precept. Morality is defined as principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. 
It's a set of standards in regards to a person's conduct. And the word precept means uh, a general rule intended to regulate behavior or thought. I'm pulling those definitions from Oxford. So, so the, sa- the statement, tolerance is not a moral precept, means that it's not an automatic certainty that one person should or will put up with the, conducts, uh, the conduct, beliefs, and actions of other people in society. So Yonatan Zunger is saying that's not how tolerance works. He might agree that the phrase live and let live is incomplete because it doesn't take into account people who don't b- abide by the standards of conduct put forth by the phrase itself. Does that make sense? So Zunger says, quote, Tolerance is a social norm because it allows different people to live side by side without being at each other's throats. It means that we accept that people may be different from us in their customs, in their behavior, in their dress, in their sex lives, and that if this doesn't directly affect our lives, it's none of our business. But the model of a peace treaty differs from the model of a moral precept in one way. The protections of a peace treaty only extend to those willing to abide by its terms. It's an agreement to live in peace, not an agreement to be peaceful no matter the conduct of others. End quote. So this concept of tolerance as a peace treaty applies directly to the human rights movement happening in America because to maintain the agreement of black equality, those who don't abide by it must be corrected. To maintain the live and let live mindset, everyone must live and let live. The actions of those who conduct themselves in ways that harm others or that breach the agreement must be corrected for live and let live to work for tolerance to work. And that's why we can't simply agree that equality is a good thing for everyone. We must tip the scales to correct those who act against the belief that equality is a good thing for everyone. In fewer words, uh, this is why it's important to fight against racism rather than just not be racist. American society, built on a foundation of the oppression of black people, can now only achieve equality by proportionally supporting black people. Now, we've reached a section uh, in which I removed an entire 15-minute statement about the president and, and about my complete lack of understanding about exactly what characteristics, what actions, or what actual policies make him a leader worthy of a country that has always prided itself on allegedly being the best and the most powerful. Uh, I've removed this section because I don't want to entirely detract from the topic at hand, but I truly don't understand. On top of not supporting our 45th president for all the ways that he directly causes harm to my fellow citizens, uh, to non-citizen humans, uh, to our land, 
and to societal progress and to equality and civil rights and the reputation of our country, I also don't want my own reasoning or sense of judgment to be called into question because of my support for someone who quite obviously cares only about himself and his own popularity. And, and not just the current president. I wouldn't support anyone like that. But this one in particular, he recklessly and with no remorse damages the lives of so many Americans. He too considers himself the best and the first in everything better than the rest. Yet his track record, his actual accomplishments, show that these self-perceptions are hollow and empty. Trump hurts Americans far too much to be a true leader of substance. His claims of greatness and his godlike self-perception carry no weight. He is no patriot. A true patriot fights for the rights of their fellow citizens. A true patriot fights for the freedom of the people in their country. America is not America without its citizens and without its citizens being free and being alive. And the less free and the less alive people are because of the actions of someone who's too busy looking in the mirror, who are we? Who are we? Hands in the air, military fuck. The start of a brand new America. Without him, and be proud of where we're from. And here's to where it Do you love hearing me rant? <laughs> I bet you do. We're all glad that I cut that last part down. Can you imagine? Let's talk about police. Starting with an excerpt of a conversation between the celebrated author James Baldwin and the poet Nikki Giovanni in 1971. A cop is a cop. Well, cops no. are white. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and he, may be, he may be a very nice man, but I haven't got the time to figure that out. You know, all I know is he's got a uniform and a gun. You know, and I had to relate to him that way. You know, <laughs> that's the only way to relate to him mm -hmm. at all. Because one of us is going, you know, one of us may have to die. One of us, you know, in New York, there's a, a big campaign going on to humanize the um, policemen. And they have post uh, billboards upstate. And they have a picture of a big cop bending over this little blonde girl. Mm -hmm. and, and the signs say, and some people call him pig. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to buy a billboard. I told a friend of mine, I want to buy a billboard and show this big cop and this 14-year-old kid with 30 bullets in him and say some people call him peacemaker. 1971. 
nearly 50 years ago, and two black writers were discussing the idea that, as a black person, an interaction with police could easily end in their death. I want to make a couple statements here. First, you may support the police. And I understand to an extent because I support firefighters, and I think a lot of people who support the police view them in a very similar way to firefighters. And I get that. And maybe you're not someone who likes nuances or who uses terms like systemic or intersectional. That's fine, but I want you to know that there is more to the story. We are never done learning unless we refuse to learn. But there's more to every story. Issues like this are never only surface level. They are very, very complex. When it comes to police, I want to make it very abundantly clear that black lives are lives. And what some call blue lives are a chosen job. They're a job. The choice to enter into a system that is designed to use force or to to, to progress or resolve situations, that is a decision made by police academy hopefuls. They have the ability to choose to enter into that system or not. Black people are born with black skin. They don't choose this. They do not choose to be born into a country with a historical record of mistreating people with their skin color. There's no erasing the history, and thus there can be no ignoring the effects that our country's historical actions have in modern times. It is not a bad thing to be black. Being black is good. But being born black in America is and always has been more challenging of a fate than being born white because you're born with a history of oppression. Black boy, black boy, we ain't gonna lie to you. Black boy, black boy, we don't like the sight of you. Pull up on the side of you, window roll down, grow fast. Then we wonder why we see the side of you. Probably coming from the dope house. We can let you slide, but your tail light is blue. To understand the evolution of the American police force, I'm going to point you to the podcast Through Line. The team who makes Through Line produced an episode this past June 4th about the history of policing in America. And as I am not an expert in the topic, and they've already done the work, I highly recommend giving that hour-long episode a listen next time you're gluing up a project or in the car. If I were to summarize my thoughts on it, I would say that modern-day police, an organization formed from what were called slave patrols, deserves to be monumentally restructured and rethought from the ground up. When a foundation is full of cracks, to continue building higher and higher on it is just unwise. To have a strong, sturdy, effective end result, the old foundation has to be scrapped and a new one poured. The police system is built on that cracked foundation. 
I don't see how it will ever, in its current state, result in a strong, effective, uh, ethical uh, organization. I really don't. Uh, The second point that I want to make about the police is that an organization that uses bullets, batons, tear gas, pepper spray, and handcuffs to intervene in any situation is an organization using the absolute simplest forms of control. Even writing traffic tickets is Pavlovian conditioning. Someone repeatedly ticketing, ticketed for speeding is trained to think, oh, well, I have to keep paying money because I was speeding and I don't want to have to pay money, so maybe I won't speed. Hmm. Uh, so the same thing's true for other human control devices like batons and tear gas. They're just made to debilitate and control a human through pain, like a, like a shock collar. It's conditioning. We've all heard the phrase, jack of all trades, master of none. And when the police, an organization trained in using methods of physical force, are expected to respond to every variation of situation, what method are they going to use to progress that situation? Force. Force and pain. Uh, To expect someone trained in force and pain to default to bargaining or negotiation under pressure is an unrealistic expectation. This is why public funds should be distributed more toward crisis interventionists in more specific areas of expertise than simply force. We already have dispatchers. Surely if a 911 call is placed because an elderly couple's adult son with a mental illness is having a tantrum or fit, someone trained in de-escalation tactics, social work, or family dynamics could be of more use than someone trained in tasers and handcuffs. that the traditional police are suited to situations in which force is the only option. Perhaps armed robberies, domestic abuse, active shooter situations, and maybe writing speeding tickets and handling DUIs. But I really don't think that we should, I don't think we should rely on police who are trained in pain and force in nuanced situations in which experts trained in other areas, can provide much more relevant service in more thoughtful, effective performance and better outcomes. There is no job loss doing that. All it is is more education in more varied areas of focus for the same number of people. The president keeps promising to meet cities' protests with force 
as if America is in a civil war. Citizens carrying a desire for equality and police carrying weapons to cause pain and oppress the free speech of those police's fellow countrymen. What the hell? I understand that looting is wrong, and breaking storefronts is wrong, but what we see on CNN and Fox are the most extreme happenings. Footage of a Molotov cocktail going through a broken storefront window is sensationalism. It sells more commercials than a peaceful protest. When my parents were building their house and beginning to tend their property, my grandfather told my father, who was trying to grow grass, if you treat it like a lawn, it'll act like a lawn. Well, to every police precinct across America, let me say, if you treat a peaceful social gathering like a riot, it will turn into a riot. Humans react to what they perceive and to actions that impact them. Last year, 2019 in Denver, Colorado, Elijah McLean, a black massage therapist known for playing his violin to kittens, was put into a chokehold and killed at the hands of police. This summer, in a park in Aurora, Colorado, his hometown, a violin vigil was held in his memory. Guess who showed up at the vigil? Police. In riot gear. Are authorities trying to help Americans come together? Are they supporting our right to free speech? What is the point of this senselessness? Why are troops being sent to Portland? Why were they? Why were citizens' Miranda rights being ignored as they were pulled into unmarked cars? We are apparently living in a police state. Force is not the answer. Violence is not the answer. Silencing citizens' right to speak freely, not the answer. A routine stop, that's what he called it. Registration, glove box, license, wallet. Cause blood on the driver's face and neck. So his police senses suspects it's a domestic. The girl looked like she took one to the eye with his hand on his gun. He say, drop the keys outside. Naturally, the gentleman asked him why. Now the gun's coming out the holster, that's his reply. Passenger seat starts to scream like she ain't never seen the same thing on the TV screen. Ma'am, shut your motherfucking mouth. Sir, may I suggest that you unbuckle and get out? Door opens, left leg touchdown within a split second. Upper torso is on the ground like, goddamn, you could have snapped his spine. Pig's knee to the back, hog tied by the swine. Girlfriend's trying to hold back tears, and the driver's on the concrete yelling and swearing. Officer got a little bit lost in the zone. It all took him back to childhood. Home sweet home. Less one, just might lose breath. Read me, my right's my left. Less one. And uh, let me just say, every dude I know had a distaste for police when all these guys were starting to drive because they wanted to drive fast. Everyone had radar detectors, myself included. My distaste morphed in later years into some form of fear as my knowledge of the world grew. 
I even sported a thin blue line sticker in my early 20s just to assure any officer who may have pulled me over that I was a model citizen. But now, while I would still err on the side of self-preservation in an interaction with police, I don't want minorities to think that I value the job of policing over their lives. So the sticker has been removed. In its place is the raised fist, a symbol of solidarity and support to the traditionally oppressed. I can't feel what they feel, and I have not experienced what they experience, but I believe in stamping out oppressive action to make things right. Pop culture is full of compelling narratives, from Tupac's changes to Rage Against the Machines, Killing in the Name, to Bob Dylan's Blown in the Wind, from Tarantino's movie Django to Solomon Northup's narrative Twelve Years a Slave. We have and have had for years compelling arguments in front of us constantly. The humanitarian-oriented population and folk legends begging the country to lift up and support the downtrodden among us, to merely begin to reverse the ugly origins of America's establishment and the resulting ongoing oppression. If we can't find the basic empathy or virtue within ourselves to stand up for the truly oppressed, and that's kind of a piss-poor situation if that's the case, But we should then at least recognize that our own pursuit of happiness depends on this. The more we make a conscious effort to level the societal playing field, the less of this oppressive bullshit we all have to deal with, and the more we can focus on our own lives and pursuits. A rising tide truly does lift all boats. Help that tide rise. Eradicate racism wherever you notice it. Uh, How, you might ask? Well, it starts with empathy. I've been working on learning what I can the last few months. The stuff that wasn't taught or was taught but was whitewashed in schools. And while I am in no way well-versed in the black experience or perspective, now is a great time to dive in and hear about others' lives and how they differ from someone who was fated for privilege and Think about ways to help bridge those gaps and ways to remove those barriers of racism and inequality that white America has installed throughout history. I've I've posted on Instagram before about Risk Podcast. From June 11th to July 2nd, 2020, we're going to be rerunning some of our very favorite stories that have been told by black storytellers about race and racism. As you probably know, a huge priority of ours here at Risk is to feature as many stories from people of different walks of life. And it's especially important, we think, that people are hearing 
about black lived experience from black people. That's why I want to remind everyone, if you, if you think you might have a story. I am recommending Risk Podcast in full force now because they've been re-releasing stories by black storytellers over the past few weeks, months. If you Google the phrase, Risk Podcast Black Lives, just a little ways down the list of results, you'll have your pick of at least four relevant episodes that will help put you in the shoes of someone born with dark skin in a country founded on their oppression. I found that miniseries super helpful. I also want to recommend uh, the entire podcast Code Switch, um, a miniseries called Race Trader by the podcast The Heart, um, episode 405 of the podcast 99% Invisible, in which they examine how the American police used to double as our EMS service before expert paramedics were trained to do that job. Uh, the movie Django, just because it's engaging and illustrative. The movie 12 Years a Slave, to bluntly remind us of the brutality that enslaved people were subjected to not uh, two generations ago. Uh, the series Dear White People on Netflix. There's there's so many more resources available than I can possibly recommend, but those, those seem like a good start. So... Go do good out there. Be kind. Question everything. Everything that is fed to you. Remember that there are many perspectives and often complex details behind every incident, every story. Learn those details. And then act in a manner that your hypothetical grandchildren would be proud to look back on and say, my grandfather spoke out against oppression. He fought for equality. He took action to move the world in a direction that supports, not harms, the people to whom America handed the short straw. The key word this episode is empathy. This is not generally a societal betterment-focused podcast, but I could not move forward without acknowledging the state of our country and the fight for human rights. Thanks for listening, and until the next one. How many years must a mountain exist Before it is washed to the sea? How many years can some people exist Before they're allowed to be free? There's a man who wants the White House for his personal TV show. Wants his face on all the money. Wants his name on all the roads. Says he can make us great again. Says that he knows how. He's gonna build a wall, big and tall, and kick everybody out. Just another reason. People can't get along. 
picking sides of the USA Treat me like a human Treat you like the same Maybe we'll all get along districts keep the white kids white keep the black kids poor the Spanish speakers out say that it's all equal just like it used to be just stay on your own side of town with help just out of reach it's just another reason episode we heard from the following in order uh casey neistat in his 2020 recounting of the march 2020 killing of brianna taylor diana ross a 1972 recording of the song strange fruit eric bibbs 1997 version of the drinking gourd ben folds 2001 song rock in the suburbs Jason Hibbs at Bourbon Moth in his 2020 statement as a maker on current events. Alicia Keys and Eminem in their 2017 song, Like Home. James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni in a clip from season one, episode four of Soul in 1971. 
uh, Eminem's 2017 song, Untouchable. Donald Glover's 2018 song, This Is America, instrumental version. Tupac Shakur's 1998 song, Changes. Atmosphere's 2018 song, Less One. Green Day's 2004 song, Holiday. Kevin Allison's intro to his podcast, Risk. Peter, Paul, and Mary's 1965 version of Blowin' in the Wind. And Joe Purdy's 2016 song, Maybe We'll All Get Along Someday. <laughs> 